Welcome to the Catholic Sportsman Show, and we have Father Roger Landry as our guest today. And before we get started, we always start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your gifts. Thank you for the opportunity to praise and love you. You know exactly the help we need in order to grow in our identity as your son's followers. Please give us that sporting spirit so that we might strive to enter into him who is the narrow gate and bring many others along with us to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the gift of our faith. We ask this in the name of your Son, who lived and died out of love for us, and now lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. So yes, we have Father Roger Landry here on the Catholic Sportsman Show uh, Father is a priest from the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, and currently he is the Catholic chaplain at Columbia University in New York. He is also a National Eucharistic preacher with our National Eucharistic Revival that is in process, and we'll definitely talk about that. So welcome, Father. Great to talk with you face-to-face. -face. Great to be with you, Paul. Great to be with you, Randy, and all those who are tuning in. Yes. Father, please share with us some background about yourself and the intersection between your faith and sports in your life. So I am lucky to be an identical twin. And so I shared the womb and was in constantly competition even before okay. I was born with the handsomest man now in the entire world, my twin brother, Scott. And, um, and so we were born uh, as the firstborn sons of my parents in Lowell, Massachusetts, and we have a younger brother and a younger sister. And uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a Golden Gloves champion. And so not only because he wanted to pass on that skill, but also because my twin brother and I had obvious sparring partners when we were growing up. Twice a year, my uh, Pepe, as we would call him in French, um, would give us boxing gloves. So uh, Scott and I would be trained by my grandfather and also my dad how to use them on each other. They were big padded boxing gloves when we were younger. But that's really the first thing we started to do. We obviously were always racing against each other and competing against each other. Eventually, we became big time baseball players, which was uh, the sort of first main sport. Loved it. Growing up in the um, region of champions, which is New England, with the Celtics and their record number of championships, um, with the Red Sox, which we waited forever, but we've won four in the last 18 years. The Boston Bruins were always perennially competitive. And uh, in my adult life, in a particular way, the New England Patriots with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. New England is a very sports fanatic place. So we grew up wanting to play everything, wanting to imitate the heroes that we were seeing on the court or on the field. And so baseball was that first thing that we did, um, playing in the little leagues and senior leagues and playing pretty much all of the positions, pitchers, catchers, shortstops, center fielders, et cetera. Um, we likewise play basketball. We, uh, you know, right now I'm five, six, but I was five, six in the seventh grade. So I tried to model myself off Moses Malone and the okay. guys with the low post moves. And my twin brother, Scott, 
Uh, he was the guy who modeled himself after the guards. So we had a lot of fun out there on the court and really learned how to play. Later on, I'd referee basketball in order to be able to make money. Coach basketball for nine years myself and always loved that sport. But when you stop growing at five, six, it was time to find another sport, which was wrestling. Lowell, Massachusetts is actually perennial New England championship wrestling uh, programs, both in junior high school ages as well as in high school that's produced lots of people who've gone on to Division One in um, in freestyle wrestling. And so I happened to apprentice under a, a multiple national champion. He was a year ahead of me, but we were the same size. And so I w- would spar against this guy, Jim Kennedy. And when I didn't have to wrestle against Jim Kennedy, but people my age, uh, few would be able to last more than a minute because I was actually getting trained by the best wrestler in the country at those weight classes. And so I always loved wrestling. But when we got to high school playing basketball, we were the fourth ranked team in the country when I got there. And so we played freshman and JV, but then we seeded our spots to our younger brother, Greg, who was taller than we were. And the coach was very plain to us that if we were to uh, retire at 16, my younger brother, Greg, at 14 would be able to play. And so Greg came straight on to play for the team and we took up tennis. And so for the rest of um, my high school and college years, as well as into the priesthood, I was a very competitive tennis player. So I was the number one guy on our team at Lowell High School, which did very well in the States. I competed in the typical USTA tourneys. And uh, when I got to Harvard, we had recruited 13 of the top 50 uh, ranked guys in the country under 50. Uh, sorry, uh, top uh, 13 of the top 50 ranked guys in the country. And so I wasn't recruited, but they've always had the idea at Harvard that they wanted to have at least one walk on. So there's a tourney with 75 mm-hmm. guys who would compete to, uh, to win that walk on tourney who would get a spot. And uh, I was lucky enough to win that walk on tourney and to play against guys. Four of my teammates ended up going pro. I had really good ground strokes and I had very good footwork from the other sports. And so minimally I was uh, quite good in warming these stars up for their matches because I almost never made mistakes um, on the ground. And, uh, and I was quick enough to uh, really get a sweat up for them as they were preparing to play, but it was a thrill of a lifetime actually to play against them, to play against various of the pros who would come to practice against the Harvard team. Um, to see Division One college sports at a very high level and to befriend many of the athletes. And so when I eventually was assigned to uh, the North American College in Rome, we had some beautiful tennis courts there. Pretty much everybody would come to play from the Vatican, including the Cardinal Secretary of State at the time, Cardinal Angelo Sodano, and his secretary at the time, who's now Archbishop Timothy Broglio, who's the new president of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. And I was playing with a former Mexican Davis Cup player who was studying to be a priest diplomat in Rome. And both of us were quite good and people would sit around and just watch us practice. And so I tried very hard uh, in the late 90s to get the Holy See tennis team. If you remember back in 1998, there was the Jamaican bobsled team. How crazy that was that you had a Caribbean nation 
uh, spotting uh, team in the Winter Olympics, but they were quite competitive and it was a major media event. And so I tried to pitch because I thought if it could get to St. John Paul II, he would at least listen to the idea that because all the words in tennis are our Catholic terms, you've got love, you've got serve, you've got service, all the rest, that if we were able to um, get a team and apply to get into the Olympics, it might be one of the greatest vocational moments of all time. But Cardinal Sedano didn't think the idea was as cool as we thought it was, uh, and so it never got to the highest levels. But I've always enjoyed sports. Now I'm more a fan than anything else because priestly duties get in the way of the typical times other competitive people are able to pray uh, to, to play. Um but uh, I, I remain very grateful for that entire experience of being trained on a sports field because sports is one of the greatest analogies for the ascetical struggle that our faith has. And St. Paul uses so many of the sporting analogies, whether running races or boxing or fighting the good fight. Yeah, I mean, all of this other type of stuff is, is part of who we are as Catholics. And I think one of the things that particularly appeals to Catholic men is when we're able to integrate sports and faith, because sports is a microcosm of the type of struggle that we need to fight and win in the spiritual life with God's help. And exactly why we started this podcast, because we love to talk about that intersection between sports and faith. Yes. So we've, we've interviewed uh, some athletes who at the beginning of their careers had made sports their God. What would you say to people who put anything between themselves and Almighty God? So it's always important not to make an idol out of anything finite. And that's easy because sometimes we want to exalt the goods that are out there into absolutes. And so sports is a good, exercise is a good, team co cohesion is good, the coaching, the mentoring, all the rest of it are goods. But sometimes the evil one, the devil, can't get us to choose evil, but what he wants us to do is choose good and exalt it above the supreme good who is God. And so we see that sometimes when, for example, parents allow their kids to play soccer on Sunday morning, all Sunday morning, rather than to come to religious ed classes or, or to mass even. We see it um, with uh, adults who binge watch the NFL on Sunday, rather than making sure that this is a day truly of the Lord first, uh, putting God and putting family uh, above other needs, including things that we very much enjoy. We see it uh, in the narcissistic cult of the body that sometimes can take place where people spend so much time on their physique that they can sometimes spend no time on their soul. And so with all these goods like sports and just exercise and athletic and caring for ourselves, we do need to take the opportunities to tend ourselves very well and take care of our body as a temple of the Holy Spirit and enjoy the types of things that sports leads us into without ever absolutizing them and displacing the supreme good. And if the devil can't get us to choose evil, he will try to get us to choose lesser goods over higher goods. And so that's just a constant admonition for us all. And sometimes, like, you see it. I mean, when I was a young priest in Massachusetts, there was a temptation on the first Sunday of February when I would have afternoon masses 
to just cancel the mass because there's a Super Bowl mm-hmm. on and the New England Patriots were in it. And, you know, I had a sense that I'd get very few people except non-sports fans trying to come to mass at that time. And I preferred, frankly, to be watching the game live rather than um, trying to sort of catch up when I go on in and watch the first half after after the mass. It was a temptation for even me as a priest sometimes to put worldly things over divine. Uh, thanks be to God, I uh, resisted those temptations. But I have to say, it was a struggle mm-hmm. in order to be able to do it. And so we always face those types of things. And um, God doesn't ask us to give up all good things, but he does say, you shall have no other gods before me. And we have to make sure that these good things don't lose an O and become a small G God. So, Father, what is it, the Eucharistic revival in the Catholic Church, and and how did you become involved? Well, the Eucharistic revival is one of the coolest things that's happened in the Church in the United States in a very long time. It it comes out of a context that should concern all of us, which is that over the last several decades, mass attendance, for example, has gone way down. It used to be about seventy five percent in the U.S. Now it's about seventeen percent. Especially among young people, it's lower than that. Um, but we've also seen uh, a nosedive with regard to belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Certain recent surveys have shown that only 31% of Catholics believe what the Catholic Church clearly teaches with regard to Jesus in the Eucharist, that after the words of consecration, there's no bread or wine there at all, that it totally is transformed into us body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so that's a twofold crisis. Likewise, we had the whole crisis of COVID in which um, two things happened, really. Certain people were so hungry for Jesus in the Eucharist that after the churches were reopened, et cetera, they've come back even to daily Mass trying to make up for lost time. But many others kept watching Mass virtually at home and preferring that in terms of making the effort to come to church and receive Jesus physically. Others have just continued the drift away. And so the U.S. bishops looking at all of this said, we need to do something about this because the Jesus in the Holy Eucharist is the beginning, the end, the source, the summit, the root and center of a truly Christian life. And we're at a crisis stage. And so they also didn't want to have the whole church's Eucharistic doctrine be determined by which politician should be receiving Holy Communion or not, which is constantly in the news. And so Bishop Robert Barron was out there in California with you at the time, now the Bishop of Winona, Minnesota, um, and uh, and several of the bishops proposed this National Eucharistic Revival, which is now being led by a fabulous young bishop from Crookston, Minnesota, named Bishop Drew Cousins, as a means to revitalize our Eucharistic faith. And so it's a three-year process. It began earlier this year on Corpus Christi in June. And and this this first year is a year in which we're trying to especially help dioceses and the clergy in the diocese come alive so that they're going to be able to help their parishioners in year two, which will begin June 11th next year on the Feast of Corpus Christi, and it'll last almost 13 months until July 17th, 2024, where we're going to do something awesome, which is um, 
uh, Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis, right there in the center of the country where uh, it's easy for lots of people to get to, um, where we'll have for five days there a real focus on Jesus and the Eucharist and celebrate this extraordinary gift of gifts. It will be the first National Eucharistic Congress since the International Eucharistic Congress in 1976 in Philadelphia. And one of the exciting aspects of that is that there are going to be four different nationwide Eucharistic pilgrimages, one leaving from San Francisco, another leaving from the Mexican border in Texas down at Brownsville, a third leaving from New Haven and the tomb of Blessed Michael McGivney, the founder of the Knights of Columbus, and the fourth from the beginning of the Mississippi River in Crookston, Minnesota. And all of these National Eucharistic pilgrimages will converge in Indianapolis so that we'll be able to continue that Eucharistic pilgrimage together with the 80 to 120,000 that are going to be present in Indianapolis in July of 2024. So that'll be the national phase of the Eucharistic um, revival. And there we're going to use it as a catalyst in order to try to send out those present as Eucharistic missionaries, all the lay people there, the religious, the priests, the seminarians, you name it, that we're going to com commission as apostles to go bring the gift of Jesus and the Holy Eucharist message about that great news out to their friends, out to their far and away family members, out to non-Catholics, and try to bring them to experience together with us this extraordinary gift of the Lord to us in Holy Communion. St. Teresa of Calcutta once said, you know, when you look at Jesus on the cross, you see how much God loves us. But when you look at Jesus on the altar and in the tabernacle and the monstrance, you see how much Jesus loves us now that he didn't consider it enough just to take on our nature and enter our world in order to save us from sin and what sin leads to death. He didn't even consider it enough to die for us on Calvary and rise from the dead. He loved us so much that he wanted to come into our world every day, and he considered no other nourishment worthy of our soul than himself. And that's the extraordinary gift he gives us every day. And many of us Catholics including those of us who go to Mass every Sunday, sometimes can take that reality for granted. But Jesus, the Son of God, is with us in our tabernacles. He's with us in the altar. And each of us needs to ask ourselves the question, how can I make Jesus and the Holy Eucharist a bigger part of my life? How can he truly become the Lord of my life? And that's where the Eucharistic revival is meant to catalyze great explanation get us pumped just to get that 30 percent 33 percent higher so and and to make it practical right it's not just you know there there are a lot of listeners to our to us right now who would be able to pass a catechetical test on transubstantiation mm -hmm. and be able to define it but have we made it practical you know if i can tell you just a brief story when i was a freshman at harvard and 1988, I still remember the day, September 23rd. Uh, it was the first time living on my own. I didn't have my parents looking over to see what decisions I made. You know, I was capable of doing whatever I wanted. And I asked myself, is there anything more important I could be doing on a Monday than receiving God inside? What about a Tuesday, th Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? And I said, no, there's nothing more important than I could be doing than receiving God. And from the following day, September 24th, 1988, until today, 
by God's mercy and the generosity of priests, I've never once missed receiving Holy Communion. Oh, wow. And that's had, that's had a massive impact. We're 34 years now in counting. And like, if we think two Advil will have an impact within us, how about 34 years and two months of Holy Communion in which you receive Jesus inside? You know, I, I am so grateful to the Lord for the generosity of his presence because, like, I don't know what I would do in a given day if I didn't have the awesome privilege to be able to receive him. And so that's one of the reasons why clearly I'm a priest and the Lord gave me himself in the Eucharist. And I just recognized that I wanted to spend my whole life making him accessible to others. Even when I was four years old, when my mom used to drag my identical twin brother, Scott, and me to daily mass, and we were shrimps up there in the front row. I remember seeing Father John Cantwell, who was 73 Seemingly going on 173, everything was wrong with the poor guy. His All his joints were bad. His internal organs were bad. He would die within the year. But as he said the words of consecration, I thought that if I were tall enough to be able to climb up on the altar and look inside the chalice, I'd see what I would now call coagulated platelets and, you know, um, inside the chalice because my parents had explained the dogma of the real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. And I saw him weeble-wobble his way down the marble steps of the sanctuary to give Jesus to all those who are old enough and lucky enough to be able to receive him. And I was just flabbergasted. And that was the first day that I asked Jesus. I said, Jesus, the priest must be the luckiest person in the whole universe, capable of holding you in his fingers and giving them to others. Please give me the opportunity to do that too. And that thought that first came to me when I was four has never really left me. So I was um, I was fortunate that when I was ordained a priest 25 years later, I already had 25 years of experience looking at the world through the eyes of a future priest, taking notes on what priests did well, taking notes on what priests could have done better in order to try to bring with zeal a message of this extraordinary fortune that we have, not just to be alive at a time after Jesus come into the world, not just to be a believer in him like our Protestant Christian brothers and sisters, but to be a Catholic who has the extraordinary opportunity to be able to receive Jesus every day. And uh, that is the greatest privilege of my life as a disciple. And it's my greatest joy as an apostle to be able to feed the hunger of so many for the Lord and the hunger of the Lord to feed others. You know, when we think back to Our Lady, you know, Our Lady had Jesus within her for nine months as she was pregnant before she gave birth in uh, Bethlehem. But after Jesus ascended into heaven, it was possible for the apostles to celebrate Mass. And what would Mary's hunger have been to receive that same son she had carried within for nine months, within her again from the sacred hands of St. Peter or St. John the Apostle, who had taken her into her home, what love she would have had as she consumed him again. But you take Our Lady's love, you take St. Teresa's love, you take St. John Vianney's love, you name the saint, you combine all of their love and their hunger for Jesus and Holy Communion. And I think that that is a small drop in the ocean of how eager the Lord Jesus is to feed us with himself. That's why he went through all of this. And so as a priest, knowing how Jesus wants to feed the world with the living bread come down from heaven, to be an apostle 
of that um, divine zeal is just, it's still a mind-blowing reality for me. And each day I think I get younger as I celebrate the Eucharist rather than older. Amen. <laughs> well, Father, you did a EWTN series called Remembering Jesus with Dr. Fortinacy. It was really good. And you looked at Alzheimer's from a Catholic perspective. Any suggestions on how to keep our bodies in shape and healthy, or besides going to Mass? <laughs> well, a lot of the scientific evidence that we put in that series were about ordinary practices that we can do to make it less likely that we would develop the amyloid plaques in the brain that uh, are the biggest predictor of Alzheimer's. And so what are those types of activities? Brain exercises that we're sort of regularly keeping our brain agile and alert. The way that we eat, that there are certain foods, antioxidants that decrease uh, the formation of these amyloid plaques, and that there are other types of foods, especially those in the high fructose corn syrup and everything else like this that can foster more of these amyloid plaques. But we looked at prayer activities. We looked at food. We looked at taking our mind seriously and all the rest of it. And that's a very, very good analogy for anybody who takes sports seriously. When I teach young kids the faith, I say, like, if you, if your goal were to be an NFL quarterback one, one day, what would you need to be doing right now? You know, how would you take your studies? Because it's not just that you can throw a spiral, but it's that you can really become a genius of a playbook. What should you be doing in school now if you want to be an NFL quarterback? Are you going to increase your odds to get on the field or decrease them if all you're doing is eating Cheetos and Doritos all day rather than eating really good food? What does it mean in terms of exercise? What does it mean in terms of practice? What does it mean in terms of coaching? And, you know, it they were able to get the message. And I said, we've been drafted by Jesus Christ on his team. And he calls us to be not just NFL Hall of Famers in Canton, Ohio. He calls us to be eternal Hall of Famers in the eternal Jerusalem. What are the types of things we need to be doing now in order to prepare us to become truly holy, really effective members of his team? What does that mean in terms of our prayer? What does it mean in terms of mass attendance? What does it mean in terms of getting the coaching and the sacrament of confession and spiritual direction? What does it mean in terms of forming good friendships and teamwork with all the other people in the church? What does it mean in terms of growing in the capacity to serve others and making sure we don't leave any of our brothers behind because the devil's going to go after the weak link just as much as Nick Saban's going to attack any weakness in any of his opponents on the college football field, these types of things that we can learn so much about the end goal by our day-to-day -day right now. So that's what Dr. Fortinese and I talked about in that Alzheimer's series um, on EWTN. That's what I, in general, encourage, that what we're doing now with that end in mind is what's going to uh, help bring about that outcome we desire. We've got to order means to ends, just like any professional athlete just all of a sudden didn't wake up in his 20s and say, I want to be a pro athlete. But he's been prepared and hungering for it and working for it in lots of little ways pretty much most of his life. We need to be able to do something similar spiritually so that we are the lord's great athletes and we call those saints and martyrs right. and, and father you talked about this earlier about you know how our culture you know we revere sports and 
it's not it's it's fine to watch sports and participate in sports of course right that's what we want to try to do but um trying to come up with that balance in our lives like a practical application like you said what this eucharistic revival is trying to do to make us ask questions like okay well maybe i could do one holy hour instead of watching nfl's greatest highlights or you know something like that right any, any a lot of the, a, a, yeah, a lot of the times, Paul, uh, men um, spend a lot more time adoring their high def TV than they do to the Lord in the monstrance. And that doesn't mean we can never watch sports and enjoy it. But right. when you think that you know the average guy is watching one football game of three plus hours, many guys are watching three football games. Someone you've got. NFL playing in Europe, four football games on a Sunday. Like there's time there that we can really be grown in our relationship with the Lord. And so it's a choice of priorities. And the Lord's not asking us to give away all good natural things, but to keep things in balance. And, you know, uh, so like I was a pastor in Massachusetts of parishes with lots of veterans. Thanks be to God. So many went into the service of our country. And they served very honorably. But a lot of these times, a lot of the times these guys were up in the middle of the night because that was their guard shift or you name it. They had all types of discipline that they had to leave, uh, live when they were in boot camp and beyond. It's, it's, it's a situation with a lot of discipline. I was starting a perpetual Eucharist generation at one of my parishes. And the real concern because of the neighborhood, which wasn't the safest neighborhood, would be the night shift, right? The, the, basically from 10 p.m. all the way through 6 a.m. the following morning. And, you know, you had a lot of generous women who would come, including women in their 80s at those time periods. And I just started feel awkward about that as someone who, as a spiritual father, likewise, needs to care for their lives. And I said, hey, guys, so many of you served the country and how good it was that you were up there in the middle of the night guarding the base. You can do the same thing for God. And so I'm asking you, please take these shifts at night. You know, so many of the Knights of Columbus, so many of the other veterans, God bless them, heard that call. And, you know, in, in, in that I was trying to lead by example. I'd always take the 2 a.m. shift. Um, so that they'd recognize that I wasn't just blowing out hot air, but I was trying to lead by example as best I could. And they showed on up. And, you know, what was really interesting is these guys who didn't spend a lot of time praying all of a sudden began to grasp that, okay, this is really God and it's quiet, and I just have to come and be in his presence. And the more they did that, the more their life began to be transformed, especially the guys who were retired. That's when they would start to come to daily mass afterward. That's when they would start to get involved in other aspects of charity. But everything started to get integrated when they got the biggest pillars in their proper foundational spot. And so that's what I'd encourage everybody who already um, – uh, is an adorer of what we see um, on the uh, television set that we um, that we take the Lord very seriously and begin to stare at him with the same type of love and attention. And we get better at it over the course of time. I just challenge everybody listening to make sure that if they're spending time in front of 
television every day to make sure that they're tithing some of that time to God in prayer. They'll never outgive God in the generosity and they'll experience the blessing in their life. Amen. As we did research about you, Father, for this podcast, we found you to be a very busy person. How do you find time to accomplish everything? Part of it is prayer, right? So if you if you get God in his proper place, then you'll approach the day um, in a much more efficient way because you're now you're uniting your work to God, you're uniting everything to God. And so you waste much less time when God gets his proper foundation in your life. So that's the first thing that I say. The second is... Um, there's a certain urgency that Jesus calls us to live with. Um, we've got to be patient on the one hand, but paradoxically, um, we've, we've, we've got to be urgent uh, because we don't know the day or the hour. Today actually might be the last day I have. And if that were the case, I really want to be glorifying the Lord as much as I can with the work that he's given me. The third thing that I just say is, you know, I've been blessed to have been exposed to Opus Day from the time I was an 18-year-old college freshman. And one of the things that St. Jose Maria and those in Opus Day have really passed on is this capacity to sanctify your work, that work isn't meant to draw you away from God. Work is meant to be prayed. And if you're going to be praying your work, you're going to approach it in a whole different way than if you just look at your work as a burden. And a lot of the days when I've got a ton of work to do, when I was younger, I used to sort of complain about it and, oh, woe was me. I've got all of this stuff waiting and I'm not going to have any free time to do this, etc. Now, thanks to the uh, help that they have given me over the course of time, I say, Lord, boy, I've got a lot of work to sanctify today. I'm really going to need your help. And so I try to do my work as well as I can as the sacrifice of able to try to give the Lord the best I can, which doesn't mean perfection, but the best I can on a given day, uh, asking him to supplement those efforts. And, you know, we see what the Lord does when we give him what we have on a given day, just like that young boy who gave Jesus five loaves and two fish, not thinking that that could feed a crowd of 5,000 men, 5,000 women, probably 15 to 25,000 kids, and actually have 12 wicker baskets left over, one for each apostle, that when you just give the Lord a little bit of that fruit of one's labor, he can do incredible things with it. And that's right at the heart of the Mass, right? When we pray in the prayer of the offertory, you know, blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through your goodness we have this bread or this wine to offer, fruit of the earth or vine, and the work of human hands. We don't start with grains and grapes, we start with bread and wine, which is first God's gift, but then the work of human hands. I mean, it, we incorporate all our sacrifices right there to the Mass. And that's one of the ways that Jesus in the Holy Eucharist becomes the source and the summit of, uh, of our life. And so prior to the Mass, which now on a college campus, I celebrate at 1210 every day, whereas I was used to for many years celebrating it before seven. But all the work that I do in the morning, I try to unite to what I place on the patent at the altar. And then after, first it's Thanksgiving that the Lord has 
within me working together in tandem with me as we do an interview, for example, as we're doing right now or whatever else work that I have. And then after about Vespers, so after I pray evening prayer at night, I start to do the rest of the work in communion with the Mass I'll offer the following day. And that whole approach to work, trying to make it Eucharistic, in which I say, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my sweat, these are my calluses, these are my sufferings, these are my frustrations, these are my joys, given and shed out of love for God and for others. That makes work prayer. And when work becomes prayerful, that's when, rather than alienating us, that makes it actually joyful and uh, a fitting outgrowth of the love we receive in Holy Communion. Is there, is there anything that you would like to share in particular with our listeners to encourage them to become in their journey to eternity? So I'd just say first, um, prayer is the most important thing we do. And God listens to us 24-7. And to make our life um, a living dialogue with the Lord. When I train people on prayer, I remind them that prayer is not fundamentally an exchange of words. It's not fundamentally an exchange of ideas. That prayer is an exchange of persons. In which, as Jesus says in John 15, he comes to abide in us and wants us to abide in him. There's a mutual indwelling that takes place in prayer. So our whole life is supposed to be an existence-made prayer in which we are living in this dialogue with God. That takes a lot of practice, but it starts by making time for God every day. I wrote a book back in 2018 called Plan of Life, Habits to Help You Grow Closer to God, in which I focused on lots of tried and true practices over the course of the century that help us to make everything we do an offering to God in prayer in which we receive his help and then offer it back to him. And so I propose that to guys, if they're in women who are listening to us, if they'd like to get some practical tips of how to make their life more and more prayerful, that would be the way that they're really able to grow. The second thing I'd say is a lot of the times we water down our faith. Um, I see it in New England every time there's a snowstorm that there are a lot of people who don't come to Mass because the roads aren't great, but anytime you drive by the mall, it's packed on a day like that. And, you know, are we willing to really make the sacrifices for our faith that we would for anything else? And we are making sacrifices all the time. Do we make sacrifices for the Lord? Do we make our faith practical in terms of the priority we give? And we see that when we say, I'm going to keep my appointment with the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to sort of get outside of however I'm feeling in order to be there with the Lord. So many even casual athletes, joggers, they won't feel like going out and running on a given day, but they know it's good for them. They'll lace up their sneakers. They'll start. And all of a sudden, five or ten minutes in, they start to get that adrenaline and it becomes much easier. The willpower that gets them to leave their room and at least begin to jog is a similar willpower that we need in the faith so that we're able to transcend our feelings and really start to say, Lord, I might feel nothing. I might, about, I might be about to make the worst holy hour of all time, 
but at least I know it's you and I'm going to give it the best shot that I can to, you know, to challenge ourselves that way. Like we try to do it in Advent and Lent by adding something to our life or subtracting something that's a distraction, super important. But we're in a culture in which like, even when you get to Lent, we treat ourselves as spiritual wusses, right? Like as if giving up potato chips is going to really make us holy <laughs> or as if prayer fasting and almsgiving is a multiple choice test rather than an all of the above. And, you know, these types of things, we've seen it over the course of time so that people don't kind of make those sacrifices. Sometimes people ask me like, father, what do we have to do to promote priestly vocations and vocations to religious life? Because so much good happens in the church downstream from these types of vocations. And I said, listen, the, most important thing of all beyond praying to the harvest master is to try to make our families and our parishes places in which we try to cultivate loving God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. Sometimes we can be satisfied by giving God 10% of our mind, 13% of our strength, etc. Where God's saying, I don't even want 95%. I don't even want 99%. Or the ivory you know, soap version of 99.44%. He's asking for all of it with his grace. And when, when we start to make that type of effort for the most important thing of all, it starts to overflow in the way we live the whole rest of our life. But if we, if we shortchange the Lord, then what happens is what Jesus in the book of Revelation and Pope Emeritus Benedict said, is basically the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, would that you be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to have to vomit you from my mouth. Jesus would rather have us cold than lukewarm. Why? Because when we're cold, we start to shiver. When we're cold, we start to look for the fire. We start to look for the blankets. We start to look for what can really heat us up. Whereas when we're lukewarm, we can begin to think we don't really need anything. And then God can become second in our life and then third and then slide down to 10th and then start to slide down into oblivion. And we begin to have a relationship with God only as an emergency valve rather than as the real foundation of everything. And so I just urge that when we begin to put God first and make the sacrifices for God the way we would for any genuine priority, then we start to strengthen all of those spiritual muscles. And that's the way we will um, fight the good fight so as to win. And Father, as we, as we close... Um... We just wanted to ask uh, how things are going to Columbia, by the way, and how can they keep up on your projects or anything they should know about apart from the Eucharistic revival should be aware of? The easiest way to stay in touch and follow any of that is there's a website that my twin brother built many years ago called catholicpreaching.com. So all my even daily mass homilies are uploaded there, all my articles that I write for the National Catholic Register and elsewhere, the various lectures and retreats I preach for priests and bishops and religious and lay people, they're all up there totally for free. Um, because I know a lot of people are hungry out there and they don't know where they can go for the resources. I'd encourage them to give it a look. Based on that site, it links to podcasts if you like to 
listen to things as you're working on out or driving in the car. It links to YouTube videos of the various talks that I've given that's been re- that have been recorded. It um, to the to, to various other offerings um, that I've been involved in. Columbia, thanks for asking, has been going surprisingly great. You know, Columbia, like most of the Ivy Leagues, has a highly secular reputation. And I figured when I came here that I'd be doing mostly sowing and very little reaping at the beginning, that I'd be like those laborers out there under the sun for most of the working day. But what I've discovered here is that the Lord has really been working very hard prior to my arrival. And they're like every day from my first day here three months ago, I just said, I'll hear confessions before mass. And I've never had fewer than three students come to see me. We have Eucharistic adoration every day. And sometimes we can have 30 or 40 students coming just for adoration. Daily mass is fabulous. The retreat was packed and sold out. Um, Holy Land pilgrimage we're going to be doing in in May. And so many of the students are excited. You know, when I look still out at Columbia, it's a field right to be harvested. But, you know, I'm really grateful that the Lord has given me so many talented, young, zealous co-laborers, uh, collaborators, as would say, in that vineyard. And it's fun. You know, I mean, they're really exercising my spiritual fatherhood by regularly showing up for appointments. I started uh, with office hours for two to four every afternoon, but then quickly the amount of students who um, were asking to see me, made me extend them from one to six every afternoon. And I would see students for 45 minutes or, or an hour. Now I'm having to see students just for 30 minutes because of the amount of students who want to come with the serious questions of life, spiritual advice in one way or the other. And, uh, and you know, I rejoice to be able to see the fruit that God's bearing in response to their openness to what God wants to do. And so I ask for everybody listening to us today to continue to pray for that work. Some of the students here are going to be real leaders in the church. Some of these students are going to be real leaders in society. And we really need to form our young to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the leaven that lifts everybody else up. And God is powerfully at work here. And I've got a front row seat. And uh, I'm so grateful to God for me to see that type of harvesting that I think is a sign of hope for the church overall. Right. Well, we'll certainly pray for you there at Columbia and thank God for your vocation. And just thank you for this time that you spent with us. It's so inspirational, lots to digest, but thank you, Father. You're very much uh, welcome, Paul. Very much welcome, Randy. Thanks for your very good questions. Thank Thank you very much. And we'd like to close, Father, with a blessing. Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. Glorify the Lord by your life. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Paul. Thank Thank you, Father. Father. God bless. Have a great day. Thank you. All right.